Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are going to finish up chapter three today. Can you believe it? We've only been doing this about a month now. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, I'm not in a hurry. I don't know if you've noticed that, but what I would rather do is is do what I'm doing, which is to say I want to give you as much information as I can, much background as I can to to these passages. And, and there's there's a reason for that. And, and as I said at the beginning of our look at Matthew, it, it begins with, with the idea and the understanding of, of what Matthew is accomplishing with his gospel and what he's trying to do and who he's writing to. He is absolutely um, convincing, or trying to convince at least, um, his fellow Jews that Jesus was indeed the Messiah of prophecy, that, that the Old Testament um, prepares you to receive Jesus. Um, he's writing to a, to a group of people who have probably already accepted Jesus. But then it, it's, if, so if, if today what we do a lot, um, probably in some ways wrongly, frankly, is the, the way that we do apologetics, right? So what are apologetics? Okay, apologetics are, are talking about things like creation, and it's, it's looking at Big Bang Theory, it's look, looking at young earth creationism, it's looking at all those kinds of things. It's picking apart weaknesses in, um, in the evolutionary argument, for instance. It, you get, instead, there, there are alternatives to the whole idea of evolution if you begin with the idea of the Big Bang and an old earth, and, and that alternative, one of those alternatives at least, there are two basic ones. Uh, one of those is intelligent design. And that is the idea that everything is designed by God. And it's exactly the way he intended it to be. It's not um, time and random chance or, or, and, and variations. That, that's not what produced what we see today. It's, it's the idea that there are inherent weaknesses in the argument for evolution that, that intelligent design will speak into. And so you get books like Michael Behe's Darwin's Black Box, um, which which takes two or three examples, one of which is a flagellum, another which is the eye, that says the problem with trying to apply evolutionary theory to things like the eye and the flagellum is, is that, that they, they can't actually evolve because the parts necessary for these things can't come in sequential order. They get discarded if they don't have a function. So you can't have this piece just hanging out there waiting for the next piece and the next piece and the next piece. And Behe likens that to, for instance, a, um, a mousetrap. You know, it's a very simple mechanism, a mousetrap is. You need a spring, you need a catch, and you need a platform. And that's pretty much it. And you need something to hold back the, the, uh, the catch. Um, but none of those by themselves have any value. And so it's only when they're assembled that they have any value. And, and what he says is evolutionary theory doesn't provide any sort of idea or mechanism for, oh, well, we have a platform. Let's keep that, hang on to it, and see what happens later and see if we can find a use for it. That's, that's not the way evolutionary biology works. So uh, intelligent design is one option. And then the other has to do with theistic evolution, which is God put all the materials in place and then things evolve, but he provided everything necessary. But at the end of the day, it's still a surprise to God what the final form humanity took was, and that's the reason he waited until the time of Christ to come into the world, because he didn't know what the final form would be. Well, you can kind of hear it probably in my voice that, that I'm not too um, 
persuaded by that argument. Um, one of the books that is a book called by Francis Collins, and I don't remember the name of it. He was Anthony Fauci's boss at the NIH, and, and everybody holds him up as, oh, he's a great Christian and all this kind of stuff. Well, some of the ethical stuff they do with uh, uh, testing on animals, for instance, leads me to question that a little bit. I don't care what he professes. Uh, cruelty to animals is cruelty to animals, period, end of sentence. Um, and so, the, but somebody handed me his book, told me to read it. I read it, asked me what I thought, and, and I said, I'm, I'm wildly unimpressed. Um, this guy's supposed to be a whole lot smarter than me because he has degrees in science that I don't have. But this is literally what he posits for how a human being came into being, right? And that is that, um, that, that an ape, which needs large, powerful jaws to eat what it eats, an ape was born that didn't have those jaws. His, his were weaker than that, and, and but that allowed for a larger, more complex brain. Well, we've got multiple problems, um, one, not the least of which is he's not going to survive. <laughs> if he can't eat what apes eat, he's not going to survive. His mother's probably going to reject him. Um, every mating partner is going to reject him because he's kind of pathetic compared to the other apes. There's no way that he has an advantage in mating, and so he's not likely to mate. That G DNA is likely not to be passed on to anybody else. I mean, that's just that's as straightforward as you can possibly get, right? But the other thing is, is that larger doesn't necessarily mean more complex. And so, yes, there's room for a larger, more complex brain, but larger and complexity don't tend to go together, and they don't go together in evolutionary theory. So it's, it, I, I don't have much use for that argument. So at any rate, so that's apologetics, is that kind of stuff, and then being able to prove certain things from history and just, just convincing people that the story of the Bible is actually, it makes sense, and it can be defended on multiple levels. That's what apologetics is. So in my mind, most of the people who need that who, who should, we should teach apologetics to the church. It's, I don't think it's a great method of evangelism. I don't think all that many people are going to be converted by it because of um, confirmation bias. Most people come to those debates already determined what they, what they believe and how they believe, and they're not going to be persuaded by those things. They, they came loaded for bear. They didn't come to listen. So that, that's not the best way to persuade anybody, largely because it's not the gospel. And I believe that the proclamation of the gospel is the way we evangelize people, period, end of sentence. You, it doesn't mean you can't use apologetics to proclaim the gospel. I didn't say that. didn't say that at all, because I'll do it myself, uh, about the great testimony that we have concerning Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that these gospels were all written during a period of time when other people could have stepped forward and said, oh, that's nonsense, but we don't have those counter-arguments that are out there. So I believe those things are, are real, and, and I believe that apologetics has a place in the church, but it's mostly for the church, and, and the purpose of that in the church should be to bolster your faith. Your faith can't be built on the apologetic. It can be bolstered by it. You can know that that there's a difference between, you know, believing, um, I don't know, that, that something that can't be proven— um, and, and believing in a Christian sense. Because in a Christian sense, when I say that I believe Jesus was raised from the dead, it's because there's eyewitness testimony that he was raised from the dead that hasn't been impugned over the years. So I, I, can, I, I believe it because I know that it's true, because the Holy Spirit witnessed that to me. But I also believe that it's true, not something I simply sort of believe against all evidence, 
because there's evidence for it. So so it bolsters our faith, but it, but it can't typically you can't put your faith in apologetics, right? So so your faith has to be based in the gospel proclamation and the truths of the gospel. But what I'm telling you is is that that kind of faith that's it's evidence based faith. So that that's what I'm saying. So what Matthew's doing is first century apologetics for the Jews. That's a, that, that is essentially what he's doing, but he's doing scriptural apologetics. He's proving Jesus from Scripture. He's saying, this is what our prophets said, this is what was to come, and this is what Jesus did. Do you see how it lines up? So what Matthew's gospel is really is an apologetic to the early church, primarily for the Jewish Christians that are there. But it, but it also is an apologetic for why Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians are equal and the same under Christ, because we're all saved the same way, and we're all saved by grace through the blood of Christ. So that that's what Matthew's trying to do. He is, he is trying, because the, the church, the early church, was particularly the Jewish part of the early church, would have been constantly under assault, and we know that because we have the book of Acts. So we know exactly what's going on, that there's great opposition to the church, particularly within the Jewish community. And so Matthew is bolstering their faith and, and their certainty that Jesus is indeed the Messiah predicted by Scripture. So that's the reason that there has to be a lot of background work in Matthew that's not necessarily as true in the other Gospels. So that, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing, is, is that it's partly apologetics that I do this, but it's partly because I believe the entire Scriptures bear witness to Jesus. And so I want you to have that confidence, and I want you to have that understanding. I want to open the Old Testament for you because it's important. It's absolutely important. Without him, we can't know for certain that he is the Son of God. We can't know that, that he is the one that was promised to God's people and then to us as well. So that, that's why it takes a little longer to do Matthew's gospel than any other gospel. So anyway, so now we have Jesus who comes from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. So he's come down to the Jordan. And remember, John is out in the wilderness, in the Judean wilderness. He's out there, and Jesus goes to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? I mean, John's just incredulous. He recognizes Jesus. He, he knew his story. There's no question that he knew the story, because we know that Elizabeth and Mary were cousins, and we know that they interacted with one another during their pregnancies. So there's no question John knew these things. But, but John also, in, in not just knowing these things, he also recognizes this. He knows more than the history. He knows, obviously, a lot more than that, because there's no other reason that he would say, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So it's similar to when Peter's in the boat, when Jesus tells him to push out when he's teaching, and he gets in the boat, says, push out from the shore. He teaches and then said, now go out here and let down your nets for a catch. And Peter initially says, well, you know, we fished all night, because that's when we fish on the lake here, um, and we didn't catch anything, but because you say so, then I will. And, and so he catches a huge group, catch a fish. John and James 
and in their boat have to come and help them bring in this catch. It's so great. And they come back to shore and Peter says, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man, which is the same reaction Isaiah has when he's in the temple after King Uzziah died and the Lord showed up. So it, it's, it's exactly that kind of reaction that we get here from, from um, John the Baptist, because when, when Peter sees this, Peter's, Peter's reaction is, it's a confession of who Jesus is, and in light of who he is, Peter sees himself as a sinful man, same way that Isaiah sees that. When he sees the holiness of God, the train of his robe filling the temple, the angels flying around and everything else, his reaction is, is, is to recognize his own sinfulness. I'm a sinful man, a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. And the Lord says, okay, you've recognized that. Let's heal those lips for you. And so the angel flies and he presses the coal against, from the altar against his lips and seals them and cleanses them. And so it's the recognition in both those cases of who Jesus is. And, and in, in light of who Jesus is, who I am. And that's why John will say, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? I mean, it's not even an honor here. It's a ridiculous thing, is what John's saying. It's crazy that you want me to baptize you. I'm, I just said that I was unworthy to carry your sandals, and now you're asking me to baptize you? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And remember what I've said about baptism. Baptism is for, for proselytes. It's for Gentiles, not Jews. Jews go into a mikvah when they, want to do, uh, when they want to do a purification ritual. They don't go baptize themselves. And so Jesus says, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so when he says, let it be so now, what he's saying is, it's not always going to be that way. This is a special case. This is what has to be. What an honor for John to be in this position at this time. But Jesus says this is somehow fulfilling all righteousness. And that had to be a curious thing to say to John. And righteousness would mean something more or less exactly like God intended it to be. When something is righteous, it's exactly the way God intended it to be. And so to fulfill all righteousness is to say this is part of God's plan. It's part of the plan of the Father, so we have to do this, even though it seems silly. Then he, John, consented. I mean, Jesus has to talk John into baptizing him, and I get that. I mean, if if you were in that same position and Jesus comes up and said, I want you to baptize me, you'd be looking and going, this is beyond insane. What do I have to give you? And the answer is nothing. But we're doing this in order to fulfill God's plan. And so John consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. So we get all the signs that John was told would happen, and that is the Spirit would descend like a dove, and it would rest on him or remain on him. In other words, it wouldn't just do a touch and go. No, it would remain there. And remember what I've said about Noah. Noah was the one who was going to give us rest or peace, was what his name means. And here, remember when he sends that dove out, there's something incredibly tender about the way that Noah handles that dove and sends that dove out to see if there's dry land yet. And then it brings back an olive branch, which we know as, well, peace, right? So brings back the olive branch, which means the, the, they have, the waters have um, gone down 
but not completely. And so, because he would have stayed gone, which is ultimately what happens. And so now we see that, that same image of this dove now coming down from heaven, you know, on this child of Noah, this one who is in the line of Noah, and comes and remains on Jesus. And, and then the voice comes and said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. I'm telling you, if I had been in John's shoes, I would have either said something that was wildly inappropriate and that would have caused me to have to repent immediately because I would have been scared to death. Um, or I would have wet myself, right? I mean, you hear a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. That's going to get your attention. It's going to absolutely solidify that whole thing. In case you missed the sign, John, I told you what to look for, and I just showed you that sign. But there's more than that. It's a proclamation coming from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And what is why, what precipitates that or what prompts God to say at this point that he is well pleased with his son? And it's because he did this thing to fulfill all righteousness. He submitted himself to something that was not necessary in the sense that, that he had no sin, so he had no reason to be baptized. So Jesus submitted himself to something that could be misunderstood. He could be misunderstood as a sinner in need of this baptism. And and also it's an identification with sinners. It's an identification with humankind. And, And Jesus's condescension to do this, rather than asserting his rights as the only sinless one who ever lived, is part of God's plan, part of God's humility. Sometimes God calls us to submit ourselves and do things we'd rather not do and do things that that people could misinterpret when we do them. But if we consider always that we're we're working, living, and acting for an audience of one to please him, then we can be fine with fulfilling all righteousness, no matter what it is he calls us to do or asks us to do. It's not always pleasant. It's not always easy. It's not always what we'd prefer to do. But he tells us to do things. And in, in those things, sometimes it's when you know God's pleasure, even if other people don't seem as pleased about that as you are. But sometimes we just have to submit, knowing that there's a greater purpose in mind and that we serve a good God. And so all his purposes and plans are good. And so sometimes we have to do that same thing and then we can know his pleasure as well. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.